Welcome to Overburden, the podcast for postal workers. I'm Kevin Hitchings. And I'm Brandi Hughes. And we're going to continue talking about the National Policies Section B in your Constitution. This is all about CPW in the labor movement. Uh, last time, quite a while ago, we did Appendix A, which was a struggle against the employer. And again, I'm going to call them appendices all the time by mistake. They're policies um, in the Constitution. But uh, Section A of the policies was all about the struggle against the employer. Second Section B is the orientation of CPW within the labor movement. So within the larger labor movement, not just against our employer specifically. Unemployment is the next one. Of course, we want to do everything we can to eliminate unemployment and just work towards that as a general goal. Uh, this talks about developing programs or to advocate for programs to be developed to uh, help with unemployment. Um, another part of this is uh, that the union advocates a program which would allow for a shorter work week with no loss of pay. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually a recent study done on this in Iceland, and uh, they had about 2,500 workers um, in a variety of workplaces like preschools, offices, social service providers, and hospitals, and they moved to a four day work week. Uh, they did slightly longer days, so they worked about 35 or 36 hours in a week. This was about 1% of their population participated in the study, but it was so overwhelmingly successful that they're now planning to roll it out on a grander scale to to make it so that other workers can can basically switch to that program. So they negotiate, they renegotiated their working pack patterns, and they now have 86% of their workforce has either moved to that that. Uh, work structure or has the ability to do so if they choose and the workers reported feeling less stress less burnout Uh, they said their work-life balance was greatly improved and they said they had more time to spend with their families work on their hobbies and just complete regular tasks and um, errands that they needed to run so it was a huge win for um, work worker satisfaction worker happiness and um, that's probably going to bleed out into a whole bunch of other things in in their society and that if people are happier and have more time for those things and more time to focus on the family that's going to make the children happier and they're going to grow up to be better citizens that's one of the things that the uh, the employer is automatically going to scoff at of course because it's same pay for less hours and obviously less productivity but when you think about it not really because your morale's way higher your sick time is going to be way less morale's higher you're just going to work harder uh, whether you intend to or not, you're going to get more done in most settings. And it's going to make actually scheduling a lot easier too. Having the week split almost in half, 4-3, makes it a lot easier to divide shifts and stuff. makes scheduling easier, which again makes people's lives easier to plan. Right. Well, and not only that, if if not everyone has the same three days off, think about how much freedom that gives you to book appointments with your doctor or your optometrist or whatever or to get get the shopping done or to to take a trip or any of those little things in your life that you have to either book a personal day off to do or a part of a day or just wait for a holiday or whatever. But I mean, waiting for a national holiday doesn't help you because most businesses are closed and then you still can't get those things done. Most workers given this opportunity are going to really, they have a vested interest in making it succeed. So of course they're not going to, they're not going to slack off and, and work less hard because they don't want that extra day off to be taken away from them. They want to feel like they earned it and that their boss is happy with the amount of work they've got done and they're not even going to threaten to take it away. 
it'll be interesting to see this long term, like will people ease into slightly less? And the other thing is when employers give an hourly wage, it's now spread over slightly less hours. So in the long term, I might lower income a little bit, but I think the benefits more than outweigh it. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that works long run, I guess. So the last part of unemployment is that the union is opposed to regular plant shutdowns and mass layoffs. And so they promote uh, developing a planned economy rather than our unplanned kind of haphazard thing that we have Let now. Let the corporations do what they want when they want. Exactly. Um, established through public ownership of key industries and the nationalization of financial institutions. Amalgamation is the next one. I'm just going to read it because it's one line. The union will be open to discussions with all other communications-related unions with amalgamation in mind. So anyone else who's in the communication or transportation business, if they want to merge unions, we're open to discussion. Yeah. It's just that one line. It doesn't say we're obligated. It doesn't say we have to pursue it. It just says we're open to the concept. Right. Um, I think B12 is a very... um enthusiastic position that I, I I would love to see happen. It's labor education. And so it's the CUPW will work with uh, other members of the labor union to try to make a program of labor education in, in schools. So kids in high schools and colleges and universities would have access to labor education so that they would know what unions are all about before they even get a chance to join one. I would like to know how far this got because, again, we don't know when these were put into the Constitution, but this very well might have been done and just not met with a lot of success in getting it into the schools because, again, most governments are Mm -hmm. anti-union, even if they pretend not to be. So trying to get this through the provincial education minister into the curriculum would be quite difficult, I would think. So I I would like to know if it was ever actually made or not. I like the next one, B13, the workers' daily paper and broadcasting rights. I feel like this podcast is kind of getting into that a little bit. <laughs> daily paper is a little ambitious, I think. I think so. But, um, you know, if the if the CLC was involved and, you know, it was all of the unions across the nation uh, submitting uh, things to be printed, I think that maybe you could come out with a daily paper. Well, I feel this could be updated to... Uh, a virtual journal, basically a website. Ooh, great. And uh, if you were to work with other labor-based communications and maybe say, hey, we'll give you an annual donation or something, if we can uh, borrow some of your articles in exchange for advertising or whatever, you could easily just source uh, labor issues from other articles and write your own, of course, build things right. up, have a daily built-to-maintained archive with daily issues and then archives of, of related issues. And I think if we update this one, it would be doable now. I'm not sure when it was put in, but at any time, I think a daily paper would be a little bit ambitious and expensive. Yeah, but I think that if you did it as, like like you said, electronically as an e-newsletter or something, and people could just sign up to get that in their inbox every day and, you know, read it when they have the time, I think it would really help with, help us to be more organized with other unions also because we would know what the issues they're struggling with. Um, and I know that you get some of that with your work with the um, SDLC. Saskatoon and District Labor Council, yeah. Yeah, and so I know that you often get to hear a lot about um, what what the other local unions are doing. And I have attended a few meetings, and and I find it it's always quite informative to hear what they're 
what they're dealing with and sometimes even um, similar issues to what we're dealing with. And sometimes somebody has a, like one union will has a, have a solution or something that worked for them or something they're working on that they can then share with the other union that's having a similar problem. And it just means that you're not replicating the same work. You can just kind of borrow. I think this one too shows in a kind of a subtle way how the government is against us a lot of times. Because the second paragraph here says, the union will promote the principle of the labor movement as a whole should have the right to radio and television broadcasting time on the public networks in the same fashion as political parties. You would think if we had any political support at all, the government would just say, yeah, we have the CBC. Half, half an hour, a week even. Uh, not happening. That should yeah. be something, especially on the radio. You know, TV has a little bit higher production value and the time is a little more financially viable, valuable or whatever. But on the radio? Yeah. There's no reason we shouldn't have been able to call the minister in charge and just said, hey, can we have half an hour on the radio for the labor movement as a whole? You know, and if the CLC and CBW and Unifor and everyone else would have said, hey, yeah, we really need this. It's pretty hard to argue that that's not relevant to Canadians. Like, How many Canadians across the country are unionized that this would be relevant to? You know, there's many, many hours of political programming on there. Why couldn't we have just a teeny bit for the people? So the fact that we don't have this kind of shows in a subtle way that the government is just not willing to help unless they have to. But sometimes it is less subtle. Like um, recently here in Saskatchewan, uh, one of the unions was attempting to uh, put up billboards uh, basically asking for our Premier Scott Moe to negotiate with them to uh, appreciate the work that they do and to you know, negotiate fair wage increases. And um, Direct West, which is a crown corporation owned by our government, refused to print the billboard because they said it was divisive. They're part of the provincial phone company, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it said it was divisive to ask the government to bargain fairly. Right. And refused to put it up. And I mean, this wouldn't be so questionable if two other advertising companies hadn't already printed it and the billboard is up. Well, and the SAS party have such a a long history of abusing labor. Give or take seven years ago, I think, our previous premier, uh, Brad Wall, tried to make a law that said nobody who participates in management in any way, or who is management, can be a member of a union. And it was, you know, we tried to say, oh, this is for the union, so there's no management interference and blah, blah, blah. And then he tried to define, or he said, you, the workers and the management have to decide who qualifies as management or not, and if there's any disagreement the management automatically wins. And the criteria was if the employee does any supervisor work or makes any decisions for the corporation, they become management. So That's pretty vague. It was very vague. And the example used at the time was you have a, uh, a custodian. Okay, that would be an employee normally. Do they get to choose and order their own cleaning supplies? If yes, they've made a company decision, they're management. You even if there's nobody under good them. Good news for your lead hands. <laughs> even if there's nobody under them. So it was basically what they were trying to do. And uh, it got to the point where one of them was asked, so, you know, if, if I order the company's toilet paper, am I management? And they said, yes, if the government, if the employer decides your management, you're management. If that's all you do. You know, if that's mm-hmm. the only decision you okay. make. To some of us, it matters what kind of toilet paper we're it wiping does. our butts with. <laughs> it does. But, but the whole point of this law was to make every employee no matter what level you're at, technically management, so there was a legal fee to be in a union. Basically making all unions illegal. Yeah. 
that was fortunately struck down in the courts. But uh, it's just underhanded, normal Ridiculous. stuff. Yep. Moving on to 14, International Workers Solidarity. Uh, this is the position that CUPW should support uh, labor movements and unions in other countries as well, uh, whether that's sending people to help them with their uh, actions or sending funds or any kind of resources we can make available. Um, I guess a lot of this would probably have been done virtually <laughs> lately, given the travel restrictions and uh, the pandemic. But um, I know in previous years, they've even gone so far as to send union members over to places like uh, Cuba, Cuba um, Ireland. Uh, Other places. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the ones I've heard of in the time I've been at the post office. So global capitalization is basically opposing international corporations like Amazon again from you know, large oil companies and things like that. From just dominating the world economics because that's what happens right now. Mm-hmm. Which is really bad for any local economy because not only are the people at, at the top hoarding all the money, but they're hoarding it somewhere else. They're taking money out of your economy and moving it to whatever country they're from. You know, Which is especially bad for Canada because we don't have a t- ton of large international companies compared to some of these other places so it just slowly bleeds the money out of our economy and puts it into larger economies which is really why the third world is the third world these countries aren't resource poor a lot of them are very resource rich they should be vibrant economies but larger countries a lot of times the states or some of the european countries basically abuse those resources and suck all the money out of them Mm -hmm. and that's essentially what the government's we're doing to these other countries is now what large corporations are doing to the richer countries and the governments really is just sucking all the money out for themselves and treating entire governments and rich nations like third world countries. And I think it's really, it's really unfortunate for those workers in those, those places where these corporations are starting because in order for those corporations to grow so large and to have so many, so much money, you know that the work was done by the little guy at the bottom, the person on the assembly line, the person, you know, um, doing the harvest in the field and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, these are people making pennies a day, if that. And uh, often people like child laborers, people working to their deaths, essentially, with no benefits, no guarantee of a job next week. And um, if they get injured, that's it. They're done. They're just tossed aside. Yeah. There are very few countries that would actually be poor if they had the resources to develop their country and weren't being abused by larger countries. Hmm. You know, it's not that they're, you know, that the land is so desolate they have no natural resources at all because that's where most wealth comes from is natural resources or processing other people's natural resources. And everybody has people. You know, even if they don't have a lot of resources themselves, they could get some, process it, sell it at a higher rate. There's no reason any country should be quote-unquote third world except Mm -hmm. that the system is set up to suck wealth out and even a lot of uh, financial aid you hear about this very small amount of third world aid that goes out a lot of that money is just enough money so that that company or that country doesn't default on the loans back to the larger country Hmm. you know it's not even support it's here i'll give you this money you pay your loan to me and you stay in in servitude of us i think that 
part of that is also that sometimes people will see things that are made locally and they'll go, oh, well, look at the price of that. It's so expensive. And yeah, because that person is making a living wage. That's why it costs more money because that person is making enough money off of their art or their um, labor to feed their family and to not, you know, go home and question how many of them get to eat today. Yeah. That's another thing is even when you buy something very crafty from uh, a foreign country, there's a place here that sells hand-carved stuff from Africa and whatnot, and they're very good from what I know. But uh, it's often good to look into that because sometimes it's a rich company who's, you know, selling you that sculpture, the artwork or whatever for a hundred bucks, but they're actually only paying the person who built it 20 cents, mm -hmm. you know? So you got to kind of look into your companies as well. I have noticed there are a lot more um, companies that have uh, like social benefit programs. Like I saw one online a few weeks ago. Oh, I was looking for a Father's Day present for my husband and it was these hats that were made. Um, and they were, uh, a portion of the proceeds from the hat, like it seemed like a little bit pricey for a ball cap, but a portion of the proceeds from the hat were going to providing water on first nations reserves. I'm always worried about the ones that say a portion of, cause you never know what it is. You know, um, th places like value village here that say they, all their money goes to community living or whatever charity they support. Uh, I've read several articles that have, I've read articles that say it's like less than 3% or sometimes even 1% that gets to the charity. And it's mm -hmm. just an excuse to make you come in and donate your stuff. And they're, last time I checked anyway, a Fortune 500 company, they make lots of money. They can afford to give more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know there's other ones where let's say uh, you buy this product and then we donate the same product to whatever, some needy group. Right. Um, that's kind of cool. Just going to wrap this up in the last three quick because we're getting a little bit longer. Uh, May Day, International Workers' Day. The union recognizes May 1st as International Workers' Day in recognition of workers' class struggles. Pretty self-explanatory. It doesn't say how or anything like that, just that we recognize it. I haven't seen anything other than a bulletin every year. Well, uh, I think they sometimes encourage you to take certain actions, but I can't think of anything concrete off the top of my head. Sure, there's been something but anyway it's in there um b17 uh this is another one of those ones i have issues if you heard me talk about the what things i don't like in the contract a lot of times it says the union will take an active role in achieving an increase to 15 dollars an hour minimum wage in provinces that currently do i know you need to have a certain goal to work towards but it always bugs me when there's a set number because if this stays in here for 30 years it's going to be like 15 dollars why would we want a reduction Right. Well, yeah, right now 15 still seems fair because there's a lot of places that don't have it. We don't yeah. have a $15 minimum wage. I don't know what else you would base it on, really, so I guess I can't complain on this one. Well, yeah, but I mean, in future, they, it seems pretty easy to change it to 20 doesn't it? You would think so. Yeah, or 18 mm. or whatever they determined to be acceptable at that time. Yeah, it just bugs me when they do this in the contract, when they have set numbers, because everything should be based on some kind of formula of growth, but... And the last point, B18, is collaborating on education in the labor movement. And this is the, the premise is that we should work with um, the CLC and FTQ to develop um, a group of short educational courses to present to um, union members. 
and that at least one of these courses should be designed as an introduction to unionism for people who are not currently union members. And I know that the SFL does introduction to union life or something similar to that. I'm not sure if that's the exact name of it. Uh, introduction to Union Basics, I think, is the last one I saw. Education is always good. Yes, um, there's always more to learn. <laughs> so that's part B of the not national appendices, policies. Policies, thank you. Um, which I will forever call appendices for some reason. Eh, kind of at the end. Yeah, we'll get through them. The other appendices, event, the other policies eventually. Um, there's six sections in the policies. I think we did section A probably about a year ago, so maybe it's been quite a while. maybe it'll take us another six or seven years to get through the rest. Um, some of them are fairly quick, though. You're promising this podcast is going to go on for quite some time. There, there's seven sections. A, B, C, D, E, F. There's six sections in the policies. Mm-hmm. I-